This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our journey tonight travels towards survivorship and sexual health. Uh, as our guest speaker this evening, uh, we have Dr. Tammy Rowan, who's in our Division of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Gynecologic Subspecialties. Um, so an OBGYN, like ourselves, but with a specialty interest in sexual health. As we've gone through our six-week course, we've gone through talking about cancers, treating cancers, the different types of treatment, and today we're going to talk about what happens when we move past treatment. We're going to discuss surveillance. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about some of the sequelae of treatments, and it's certainly not going to be comprehensive, but talking a little bit about some of the big symptoms that we encounter and want to be able to talk about management and discussion of follow-up. We're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about sexuality because I think that's an area that gets under-recognized and is really important for our patients, and Dr. Rowan is an expert, and we're really lucky to have her available to work with our patients. And then finally, I want to give us a little chance to wrap up, so to kind of get some follow-up from you guys, um, kind of see what you've learned, and also figure out how to tool this course for future if we want to continue uh, teaching it. So... In general, once we've completed treatment, um, we talk about a follow-up care plan. And this follow-up care plan is actually something that our medical societies want us to do. So this uh, care plan outline comes from the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer. And for accreditation for cancer centers, one of the things that they would like to see is that for our patients, that when we're completing treatment, that we've gone through a follow-up care plan, meaning that we have a summary We know what treatments we've done. And as you know, we've talked about kind of the diagnosis. We've talked about the type of cancer, where the cancer starts from, the cervix, the ovary, the uterus. We've talked about the treatments for the cancer, including the surgery. And as you recall, we've looked at pathology reports. So knowing what the pathology shows, um, knowing what the histology is, so we talked about what it looks like under the microscope, makes a difference in terms of how we manage the cancer and also in the follow-up. The treatment could include chemotherapy, and it could include radiation. And if patients receive that treatment, we want to include that information. So people will say, I got chemotherapy for a while. And, you know, for me to know how long they received chemotherapy, how many rounds. You know, sometimes having dates is helpful to figure out how much time people got treated and the names of the medications. So if they tell me they received two drugs or three drugs, we can sometimes guess depending on when we know what the pathology is. But having that clear information is really helpful for a follow-up. There are certain drugs that have certain side effects. You know, we talked about the side effects of chemotherapy. Cisplatin, for example, causes neuropathy. Um, If we give a drug called adriamycin, that can have effect on the heart. And if someone has shortness of breath, or symptoms of heart failure, you know, we'd be in particular wanting to follow up and do an echocardiogram, have them see a cardiologist. So knowing the chemotherapy that they got is important. Um, Radiation in terms of the area that was treated and how long they were treated is important to us. So when we talk about radiation to the pelvis, you know, I think that 
um, when Dr. Chapman reviewed radiation treatment, we talked about the area that gets treated, but we also talked about side effects and toxicities. Once you've radiated an area, normal tissue can only have a lifetime dose. So if you treated the, re- the pelvis with radiation for, let's say, rectal cancer in the past, we actually don't want to go and treat radiation for uterine cancer in the future because that's too much radiation treatment. So knowing the area that was treated, how much dose people got, the dates of the treatment helps us to be able to help plans for the future. Um, If people had problems or toxicities, it's helpful because if someone with an ovarian cancer is in remission but later on develops a recurrence, knowing the side effects that they had helps us to be able to plan future chemotherapy. So if nausea was really bad, we would want to know that so that we could anticipate and preemptively give more antiemetics or stronger anti-nausea medicines. If neuropathy was quite bad, we might not pick another taxane type of chemotherapy, but move to a different type of chemotherapy that has a different side effect profile. So just kind of outlying key points is important. And I think when Dr. Um, when Dr. Chapman and Julie Mack went over the genetics of cancer, um, you understand why the genetics of ovarian cancer in particular, but also uterine cancer, is really important in terms of understanding um, the genetic evaluation and what testing was done. It's interesting because Julie probably told you that that's an area that's a constantly moving target, right? We understand more about genetics every year. Um, And so knowing what testing results um, were obtained sometimes helps us come back and say we need to do a supplemental test. You know, when patients were only tested for BRCA1 and BRCA2 back in the 1990s, um, you know, 10 years later, we want to come and say, hey, we want to be able to test these patients for a multi-gene panel test. If they've had a multi-gene panel test and we now find out a family history that includes some additional genes that weren't tested for, that's something that we can also add on um, if we know what evaluation they had in the past. So that's kind of where this treatment summary or follow-up care plan is really helpful. Um, And people should keep that. If you have a diagnosis and you've had treatment, you know, this is kind of what I give the pathology report to people and I say, keep this in your file folder. This is part of your permanent record. So how do we follow patients who've had a history of cancer? Um, We talk about uh, a a schedule for surveillance. And this original paper uh, was published, and we've recently revised it through the Society of Gynecologic Oncology um, to look at surveillance. So depending on the type of cancer and whether people are high risk or low risk, we discuss how often we see patients for follow-up. So for cervical cancer, for example, if someone had a cervical cancer, they had a hysterectomy, the cancer was removed, margins were negative, lymph nodes were negative, um, that was a stage one cancer, and we think they had low-risk disease, um, we may see people as infrequently as every six months, um, and then over time, for the first year, we'd see them every six months. For the first two years, we see them every six to 12 months, and then later on, we see them once a year. After five years, we may or may not want to continue to follow them in a GYN oncology practice, and we work with our generalist colleagues, our primary care colleagues, depending on where you're getting care. Um, our nurse practitioners in my office also see our, our survivors, and so you know, if patients don't have a place to go um, for getting additional care, we would encourage them to find someone who can help see them, but if not, our NPs are also um, a keystone in terms of following our long-term survivors for surveillance. 
High-risk disease is different. So if someone had, um, let's say, a stage 3 cervical cancer, they had radiation, chemotherapy, and were more concerned that they're going to have a recurrence, then we would see them more frequently initially. And the strategy for that is, is that if a patient has higher-risk disease, they're more likely to recur. And you'll see as we talk about each of these disease sites, the first two years are really the most likely times that a recurrence will develop. So the majority of recurrences for each of our gynecologic cancers, um, the majority of recurrences will occur within the first couple years. If we see that, we have more interventions that we would want to consider depending on the disease. So pap smears are still part of our surveillance for cervical cancer. Um, we don't regularly recommend imaging. Um, we usually will obtain a scan on completion of primary radiation treatment, um, and CA-125 is not included. That's just some typo in this table that I didn't get formatted correctly. Um, but in terms of ovarian cancer, uh, we talk about follow-up of patients every three months for the first two years, every four to six months for the first three years, um, every six months for three to five years, and most of us will continue to follow a woman who is an ovarian cancer survivor annually long-term. Um, it's a disease that even with stage one disease, if the type of cancer was aggressive enough, there could be still a recurrence many years later that we'd want to be monitoring for symptoms, um, following a CA-125, if that was a marker that we've been able to follow for disease. Again, we don't scan routinely, um, but for someone where the marker's not positive, for someone who's had a recurrence, we will sometimes get scans as follow-up. Um, and certainly if we're concerned about a recurrence, the same symptoms that we talk about for presentation of disease, bloating, pressure, et cetera, we will get a, um, a CT scan or a PET-CT. Uh, and CA-125 is a marker that's helpful if we're concerned about disease recurrence. For uterine cancer, again, the most likely time for recurrence is in the first couple of years. We always want to review symptoms. Um, and again, for uterine cancer, we break it into low-risk, high-risk. So the majority of uterine cancers will present with stage 1 disease. If stage 1 cancer is not deeply invasive, um, is not involving the vascular spaces, if it's low-risk disease, then we'll be a little bit more intent in monitoring every six months for the first couple of years. For high-risk disease, that's those serous cancers, positive lymph nodes, patients that got chemo or that got radiation, we'll see them every three months for the first couple of years, then every six months for five years, and then annually. For high-risk disease, we'll probably still see those patients annually in a GYN oncology practice. For low-risk disease, particularly if it's a very early cancer, many of those patients we follow with our OBGYN colleagues. We don't do pap smears, um, and imaging and further testing is really based on symptoms. So what are the symptoms that patients have after treatment? So the, pick, the symptoms I'm going to talk about right now are more related to sometimes surgery, um, but frequently related to radiation or chemotherapy. Um, probably the most common symptom that patients complain about after a cancer treatment is fatigue. Uh, 
Sometimes it's because of anemia, and anemia can be from bleeding from surgery, recovery from surgery. You can get anemia from chemotherapy, um, and you can have fatigue from many other things, anxiety, stress, trouble with sleeping. Some of the medications we give um, will make people tired. Some of the anti-nausea medicines, uh, as a side effect, give people fatigue. And so, you know, some of these strategies come from practical, how do you address fatigue? We have a very strong symptom management service that we work with at our cancer center, and they address palliative care issues, but they also talk about symptom management issues that we know some of these symptoms come along with cancer treatment. So it's part of that integrated care that we work on in a multidisciplinary fashion so that, you know, eating, exercise, sleeping well, those are things that make sense. Um, but sometimes there's fatigue that is significant enough that does require more medical intervention, and it becomes quite s severe. Uh, we do have our colleagues help us with some of the um, severe symptoms that patients develop. Um, neuropathy is a pretty common one. Uh, with chemotherapy, uh, you can get neuropathy most commonly in the tips of the fingers or in the bottoms of the feet is where people describe. We call it peripheral neuropathy. So it's not um, you know, nerves that are in your core trunk part of your body, but more distant. Um, so it can affect uh, numbness as a symptom, but sometimes it can cause pain. Uh, the difficulty is that the Numbness is hard to treat. The pain can be managed. Uh, probably the best thing that we can do is try and prevent it um, and consider early intervention. Um, you know, these are some supplements, medical treatment, but people have also talked about acupuncture um, and complementary treatments to help prevent neuropathy. So sometimes it's temporary, uh, and that's why when we're doing each cycle of treatment, uh, we are monitoring for symptoms of neuropathy. So sometimes patients will tell me, I had some tingling in my fingers for a few days and it went away. That's okay. Um, they'll say, you know, my hands were really numb this cycle. Um, I think it's getting better. You know, that's something we'll want to watch. If they start saying that I'm not buttoning my clothes, um, if I'm dropping things, that's a significant symptom. And we know that uh, for somebody who has diabetes, for example, that can be a cause of neuropathy outside of chemotherapy. But if they already have neuropathy from diabetes, that might be somebody that the neuropathy can affect more severely. And if we see that worsening during treatment, sometimes we need to make adjustments in the chemotherapy so we can dose reduce. If we know that Taxol is associated with neuropathy, and they're getting Taxol. We might do a little bit lesser dose um, to be able to help them continue to their function uh, afterwards. Sometimes it doesn't recover, so you know we usually say that on completion of treatment it should get better. But if something is persistent over six months to a year, that may not go away. So it's kind of something that we just have to watch during the treatment and make sure it doesn't get too severe. Lymphedema is another one that we haven't talked about until the recent past. Um, so remember when we were talking about the surgery and we were talking about lymph node dissection and we were talking about sentinel lymph nodes, um, it's something that causes a disruption in the lymphatic channels. And with that, you can develop swelling of the lower extremities, um, also the upper extremities. But um, breast cancer patients talk about lymphedema of the arm. We talk about lymphedema of the lower extremities all the way up to the pelvis. Sometimes people talk about how they feel kind of a tightness in their groin area or on their mons or in their upper thigh. Um, and that can also be from 
from lymphedema. It doesn't have to be from taking out lymph nodes. It can just be from doing surgery if the lymphatic channels are interrupted. But certainly treatment um, can affect that with lymph node dissection, with radiation, with cancer involving the lymphatics. So if you have a cancer that's in the lymph node, you could understand how that could potentially interrupt the lymphatic chain, and that side could develop swelling more easily. Infection is something that can both cause lymphedema and can be a side effect of lymphedema because if the lymphatics don't drain well, then it's more easily to develop an infection. This is another condition that if we identify it early, so if we see symptoms of lymphedema, we want to talk about early intervention through physical therapy. There's certain exercises that can be prescribed. There's a decongestive therapy, which is like a manual massage or lymphatic drainage and compression garments that can be helpful. Um, That's also something that can be mild, comes up when it's hot, comes up when you've been sitting on an airplane for a long time, but also can be something that's lifelong. Um, And people, if they're managing it, can manage it but need to continue to manage it, meaning that if you're kind of working on garments and massage, you just have to put your you know, compression hose on at night when you go to bed, um, and it's a way to be able to manage lymphedema. And most of the time, if we can address it early, it doesn't become severe. Um, the last one I'm going to talk about is chemo brain. Um, and chemo brain is something that has been described, has been thought to be something that is related to fatigue. But in reality, even with good energy level, um, there can be some just people feel fuzzy getting treatment. People feel fuzzy after treatment. They say that that clarity doesn't return for six months, a year. I've had people describe chemo brain for up to two years um, after treatment. And there is something to be said about managing um, your schedule and your life in a way that helps to stay a little bit more organized. There was actually one study that says eating vegetables helps with chemo brain, so I put it down because it's for good health. Um, But following a routine, focusing, um, tracking, um, and that one seems to get better for most people, but also can just You know, people just feel different after receiving chemotherapy, and obviously this is a side effect of chemotherapy, not specifically surgery or radiation. So um, I wanted to introduce Dr. Tammy Rowan to you this evening uh, to talk a little bit about sexual health. Uh, because I think this is an area that we frequently want some extra help in. As we're doing our exams and we're following patients for treatment, you know, we have discussions um, and having somewhere to turn to to have a focus um, to talk about strategies I think is really important. So I wanted to have the chance for Tammy to talk to you this evening. Thanks, everybody, for uh, being here um, and sticking through to the end of this course. It sounds really exciting, and I'm sad that I've missed uh, the first several sessions. Um, I want to thank Dr. Chen um, and Dr. Chapman for inviting me here. I think um, this is a topic that probably affects most people, um, almost everybody, and is something that as we, you know, have discussed oftentimes gets overlooked, and it's not because people or providers don't care about it. Um, it's because a lot of times the focus um, in any kind of cancer treatment really is about survival or cure um, 
or just kind of getting through the acute phase of the treatment, and we sometimes don't think about long-term effects um, on things that are important. And I, I know that if you get, you know, once someone's diagnosed with cancer, oftentimes the last thing on their mind is their sexual health. Um, but survivorship, surviving cancer is a very long process. And sometimes, even though you might not be thinking or one might not be thinking about sex immediately, oftentimes it does come up later. Um, and it's something that if we don't address early on, um, can be significantly impacted. So I'm going to talk a little bit about sexual health. So this is mini medical school for the public. I'm going to give you actually some um, kind of biology and neurobiology lessons about sexual health. I uh, give these talks in various uh, venues, and this is going to be a little bit more geared towards the talks I give to some of our medical students, as well as my OBGYN and other, um, other types of providers, uh, just to give you a little bit of an insight to how we think about um, the physiology of sexual health. Um, and we're going to talk then a little bit about treatments and side effects, uh, tools that we have that can help maintain and promote uh, well, good sexual well-being, um, and then I'm happy to have discussion afterwards, and feel free to ask any questions during this presentation. So who cares about sexual health, right? A lot of times we think that it's kind of under the rug. People don't want to be talking about it. But it's actually getting much more in the forefront now. And there have been several publications by very prominent institutions, including the Institute of Medicine, the National Cancer Institute, and the World Health Organization. And of course, we know that people, um, individuals and couples of all ages, care about sexual health. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that people who are dealing with sexual health issues after cancer are not alone. So the data is very widespread, but anywhere from 40 to 100% um, of patients will experience some form of sexual dysfunction related to their cancer treatment. They don't always resolve after the um, immediate you know, surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. Um, and almost all cancer treatments have the potential to alter sexual function. And this is a major quality of life issue. So Dr. Chen addressed some of the other major quality of life issues. Um, but, I, you know, my passion and interest is in sexual medicine, and I think what's so interesting about it is that it's both something that can affect one's physical health, but it also affects their emotional well-being because there are oftentimes two people involved. Um, and so it just goes beyond um, kind of some, you know, a physical ailment, but it can affect every aspect of their life. Um, and we know that with intervention, many patients can have improved functionings. So this is just a little bit of background on sexual function. This is a, a graph that was actually published in the 1960s. I don't know if anyone here has watched the Showtime series called Masters of Sex, um, but it's actually an interesting um, uh, biography um, of these two researchers in St. Louis, um, which was not a very, you know, um, I would say liberal kind of advanced place in the 1950s and 60s, but they did extensive research on sexual functioning, and they did it on both men, women, and couples. Um, and this is kind of the basic graph of, you know, what was kind of the dogma for many years um, was this idea of um, that, you know, someone's sexual response was they would get excited, um, they would plateau, then they would reach orgasm, and then there'd be some form of re resolution. I'm showing you the female model. The male model was actually just one one of these. It was the excitement plateau orgasm and then um, the resolution. And when they were studying women, they found that they had at least three different responses kind of consistently in their female patients. And some of them would include um, that excitement plateau orgasm, sometimes have another orgasm resolution. Uh, some women would be excited, hit some plateau phase for a while, never really have an orgasm and 
have resolution. And some women actually went very quickly through the excitement phase, really never plateaued, went straight to orgasm, and then had resolution. So this is just a little bit of background on kind of sexual health research um, and where it started. Um, obviously, not one size fits all, uh, but it is something that I think is important to know that this actually has been studied, and they would. Um, it was pretty amazing, actually, the detail of research that they did on uh, men, women, and couples. Um, there was a kind of change in thinking um, in the 2000s where people really challenged this dogma of a linear graph. Um, and Rosemary Basson is a researcher in Canada who really looked at um, female sexual function as a more circular model, that there's you know incentives for sex, there's sexual receptiveness, stimuli that could lead to arousal, responsive desire um, that led to rewards that were both sexual and non-sexual, um, and so it's a little bit of a repeat here. And there was a, kind of this loop that, that happened. The kind of question around this is where does innate sexual desire fit in? And I think this is important because I think there's a stereotype that women don't have innate sexual desire, uh, that they only have sex because somebody else wants them to or because there's non-sexual or other types of rewards that come into it. And I, I always would like to challenge that. Um, I think that there's a lot of cultural stigma against women actually expressing their desire um, that really needs to be teased apart, um, but that if you really kind of look at men and women, both of them oftentimes do have innate sexual desire, um, and I think we're selling women short oftentimes by denying that. So whenever we look at sexual health, we always talk about this biopsychosocial approach. And this, is, this relates to everything. So we're really moving in medicine away from this idea that everything's about some sort of physical, something that we can really get down to like a molecular explanation for why someone might have a particular health outcome. And we're really saying that there's a role for biology. Um, and so the things that are biologic are things like, um, you know, what... Uh, sex you were born or assigned at birth, um, if you have a physical illness or a disability, if there's genetic vulnerability, your neurochemistry, how you react to stress, medications. But then there's also your psychology, right? So how people learn, how they think about memory, their personality, their behaviors, their coping skills, any kind of past trauma. And then there's the social context. So you take it out of just the individual and say, what are their social supports, their family background, cultural traditions, social and economic status, and their education. And when we look at it this way, it makes a lot of sense that this is extremely relevant to sexual health and sexual well-being, because it's not just about biology, it's not just about individual psychology, it's actually a much greater combination of those two plus a social context. So what are some things that influence sexual function? So there's actually, physiologically, we know that there's the role of the brain. So there's neural networks that help affect sexual health. There are hormones that affect sexual desire and sexual health. Uh, there's vascular responses, so there's physiologic responses, um, as well as more you know, structural issues related to this kind of biopsychosocial model. So when we talk about what parts in the body are involved, basically almost all of them. But the biggest sex organ really is the brain um, because it really mediates desire and also sends signals to the sexual organs, I sound so clinical here, um, that elicit a response. 
So the neurology of desire is actually really interesting. And we know that there is really a neurochemistry that affects desire. And um, this is known actually from a lot of different clinical drug trials. So many people may know that uh, Viagra, a very common drug that people have all heard of, was actually discovered by accident. It was originally a blood pressure medication. Um, But it didn't work as a blood pressure medication, but the men didn't want to stop taking it. And when they found out why, they started studying it for a different indication. And there have actually been similar drugs that um, have been discovered for women as well. Um, Drugs that were developed, for example, we'll talk about one later, for depression that didn't work for depression, but actually the women also didn't want to stop taking because it had significant impact on their desire. So we know that there are neurotransmitters. And the other reason we know this is that certain types of antidepressants actually very commonly decrease a woman's desire and have significant sexual side effects. And those are mainly the ones that deal with serotonin. So we actually know that serotonin has almost an inhibitory effect, um, and mainly because we think it's affecting dopamine. Um, Prolactin is another hormone. Um, This is a hormone that um, causes women to produce breast milk. So when they're breastfeeding, a lot of times immediately postpartum, their sexual desire goes down, and part of that is an an effect of prolactin. The drugs that do help with sexual desire, not drugs that... Uh, the chemicals in the brain that help with sexual desire, oxytocin. Um, So we think that that has um, an effect, especially on orgasm. And we know that... um you know, when women first, um, they've studied this, when women kind of have their first orgasm, or oftentimes if it's a first positive sexual experience, they have a flood of oxytocin that we think is responsible for bonding. And it's a very similar experience or flood of oxytocin that happens when a, a mother is, is with a new baby as well in terms of pair bonding. Um, dopamine is also another uh, neurotransmitter that has a significant effect on desire. So there's a lot of different... Um, there's a lot of different neurotransmitters in the brain that affect desire. And the reason I bring this up is because I think when we, we kind of have this idea that sexuality and sexual desire is such a, a social thing that it can't actually be something physiologic, I actually think that we know that that's not true. There actually are physiologic responses in the body that lead to desire. Um, Similarly, for um, desire, we see the same thing with the effect of sex steroids in the brain. So most people have heard of testosterone and estrogen. And so we know that testosterone actually has a very positive effect on dopamine, which affects desire and arousal. Um, And we know that estradiol actually does as well. So if you look at women across the lifespan, you see that the biggest um, change in their sexual function and the highest level of distress is actually during the menopausal transition. Um, and we think that that has a lot to do with the change in the sex steroids. So they have a decrease in testosterone and a decrease in estrogen uh, during that time. Um, but we always think about the biopsychosocial model. So many things that happen in menopause um, include a lot of times a longer relationship that's changing dynamics. Kids are leaving the house. There's a lot of kind of social upheaval that happens around the time of menopause as well. Um, Um, And so those are all kind of playing into it. And I'm explaining this because it actually fits really well into kind of if we think about a lot of the long-term effects of cancer treatment, it affects these neurotransmitters and it affects, more importantly, it affects the hormones. So how does cancer treatment affect it? Basically in almost every way. So someone has surgery or radiation or chemotherapy or some other long-term medication they have to take for the cancer treatment, that's going to affect their sexual function. 
So when we think about just one example is surgery. So that could affect someone's body image. We're actually altering the way their body looks. They can have bowel changes. Um, So we see this kind of both in the short term and in the long term for some women, especially if they've had a bowel resection, for example. They can have range of motion issues related to this. They can have, you know, stricture of tissue. Um, Sometimes surgery will put someone into a surgical menopause. Now, natural menopause is a very slow change. The levels of hormones kind of slowly change over time. When you have surgery to remove the ovaries, you basically wake up from surgery with almost no estrogen and testosterone being made in your body, and that is an acute change. Your body doesn't have time to adjust to that. So surgical menopause can be much more significant um, than natural menopause. And we all know about many of the side effects of natural menopause anyways, so those are much more compounded. Um, Pain can be a result of surgery, obviously, and that can affect sexual sexual well-being. And then there's changes in vaginal size and sensitivity. So if someone's had, a, you know, um, just any kind of hysterectomy, we try very hard to preserve vaginal length. But if someone has cervical cancer, for example, and they get surgery, we go, we take length off the vagina because that's part of the treatment for cervical cancer. So um, chemotherapy and hormone therapy. So those can lead to irregular menses, early menopause as well. So you don't have to have surgery to induce an early menopause. If you give someone chemotherapy, it actually um, will uh, go to the ovary and stop the ovary from um, releasing an egg every month, and that will actually induce an early menopause. And in some women, this is permanent. So we think in women who are over 40, they oftentimes will go into permanent menopause. For women who are under 40, it usually does come back. It can take about a year. Um, so I oftentimes see those women in that first year, and they're basically in menopause, um, and we have to wait for it to come back or we give treatment. Um, and that can lead to hot flashes, insomnia, irritability, depression, um, vaginal dryness. So the tissue in the vagina is extremely sensitive to estrogen and testosterone, and so if you take those hormones away, the tissue is not going to get the same kind of blood flow, and it becomes very dry. This can lead to painful intercourse. Um, women who are premenopausal and were interested in fertility, if they've gotten chemotherapy or surgery that can affect their ovaries, can lead to infertility. And we know that that can absolutely affect sexual well-being. Um, and all of these can lead to a decreased libido. Um, and that libido desire um, we talked about is off, is in the brain. And so we have all of these changes that are happening in the body, and those are going to affect the neurochemistry of the brain. So for radiation, obviously, we see many of the same symptoms, but it can be often more localized. So this can lead to fibrosis, the vagina. So in surgery, we can take length off the vagina. The vagina can be drier if we give someone chemotherapy or they don't have ovaries, but the radiation itself changes the tissue, and so that can lead to stenosis, um, narrowing of the vagina, pain and scarring, decreased lubrication. There can be urinary side effects. Um, There can be redness and swelling or ulcerations, um, decreased elasticity um, and irritation. So it's much more of a localized treatment effect um, from radiation, but obviously it makes sense how this could affect sexual well-being. Now, one thing that I, you know, think is really important, um, and I'll talk a little bit about is, you know, we always talk about, or it seems like a lot of the focus is about 
vaginal length and elasticity. And I think it's really important to think about that there's a lot of different ways to be intimate and there's a lot of different ways to have sex. And I always try to impart that on, on patients as well. So um, I, I don't want to be making the assumption that everybody has the same kind of sex or that they all, um, it's always women having sex with men, for example. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to have sex. But I think that when we talk about vaginal health, it's for more than just sexual activity. And we'll talk about that um, a little bit more when we talk about treatments. So there's been a lot of studies looking at whether or not people talk to their providers about sexual health. And so this was a, a study that's a little bit old, but it's actually really important. Um, so the question that was asked was, if you wanted to talk to your doctor about a sexual problem, how concerned would you be um, that something, one of these things would happen, right? And so one of the options was your doctor would be uncomfortable talking about the problem because it was sexual in nature. So when they looked at kind of all the, respo- the, the respondents, they found that basically almost all of these patients were very concerned or somewhat concerned. Um, They also asked if your doctor would dismiss your concerns and say it was just in your head. So even more of those patients said that they would be very concerned that that would happen. Um, And then almost all of the patients, even more kind of combined, felt that there would be no medical treatment for their problem. And I think this is really important. I think that people don't ask questions, um, and oftentimes physicians don't ask questions, um, often you know, because they're worried there might be no treatment. So either we don't want to know that there's no treatment, um, or the physician, um, it's very hard to be a doctor and not be able to offer somebody a treatment, for sure. So if patients aren't going to be asking about it because they're concerned. The question then is, are physicians asking about it? We don't have great data in the oncology literature. There's um, a lot more research coming out in terms of sexual health, but we do know that in the primary care setting or even in the OBGYN setting, um, that that very few primary care physicians um, would take a sexual history. Um, and we already talked about the fact that most patients believe that their physicians would dismiss their concerns. Um, but I think what's really important is that patient most patients feel that it's a physician's role to address con- these concerns. So they p- patients want their doctors to be asking about it. And I think what's really important is that patients want their doctors to be asking about it, but we know the doctors aren't necessarily asking about it. So there's this big disconnect here. And so when I educate patients, I always you know, try to encourage them to talk to their doctors. And when I educate doctors, I'm always trying to encourage them to ask their patients. And part of what I feel my role is is to empower people to know that there are treatment options so that we're not so afraid to ask and discuss this. So what are some of the symptoms and treatment options um, that we can talk about? So there's treatment options for vaginal dryness, um, for genitourinary syndrome of menopause. So this is the new term that we refer to when we used to call something, we used to call this um, condition vaginal atrophy or vulvovaginal atrophy. Um, we now call it genitourinary syndrome of menopause. Um, and that's, I'm going to be kind of using that term mainly for the rest of this course. There's muscular pain that can occur that can lead to sexual problems, there's neurologic pain, there's low desire, um, and then there's obviously partner and relationship issues. So for local dryness, sometimes we have this idea that, oh, the only treatment that one could use would be something hormonal, and that's actually not true. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of other treatment options out there, and most of them are over-the-counter. So the ones that are most um, kind of promoted and known about are these two called Replens and Refresh. Um, Replens is probably the one that's best studied. Um, it doesn't mean the other ones don't work. Um, Vagisil is another kind. These are all brand names, unfortunately, because they're not, um, they're, they're not like prescription 
drugs that have generic names. Um, I just am giving you all the diff- many different brand names. One that um, is not a brand name, but that is pretty common is the hyaluronic acid um, at the bottom here. So this is um, a lot of the, I know the breast oncologists really like using this um, and uh, this has some pretty, seems to be pretty well tolerated by most patients. Again, the data is pretty poor for all of these. Um, they don't, there's not a lot of randomized studies, but it doesn't mean that they don't work and it doesn't mean that they can't be tried. Um, one of the things that's important is that they all work, some of them work a little bit differently. So I usually encourage people to try different ones and see what works for them. Um, you know, these are things that they don't actually cure the dryness, um, but they can help make it much more tolerable, kind of in the same way you put, you know, lotion on a dry, on dry skin. So for, um, and they can be helpful for just kind of general symptoms of dryness um, and not necessarily for sexual activity. For sexual activity, there are lubricants that are specifically designed um, to be used for sex. And so there's two different kinds that we usually talk about, um, the water-based ones and the silicone-based ones. And these are also all not the same. So some of them are more likely to kind of, um, to, to be, to change the moisture content in the vagina. Um, and so what I usually tell people to do is to try a couple different ones. There's actually some more female-centric sex stores um, uh, or sex toy stores that actually have, it's like, it's, they have samples. You can go and actually try different ones and kind of rub them just on your fingers and you can actually get a sense for the difference um, in all of these. Um, there are, these are safe to use with condoms. Um, and they um, wash off pretty easily. The the lubrication that uh, is not safe um, is going to be your, well, the ones that are not safe to use with silicone toys, you can actually use them with condoms or your silicone-based lube. Um, and those ones are much thicker, um, and they last a whole lot longer. So for people that really have a lot of dryness and a lot of friction and a lot of difficulty with sexual activity, the silicone-based lubes can be very good. The oil-based uh, lubes are also, um, they can be very beneficial for women, um, they can't be used with condoms. So um, the silicone and water-based can, but but the oil-based can't. A lot of people like using just their over-the-counter olive oil or coconut oil. I think the coconut oil is probably the one I would recommend more. And people, and this is, you know, buy it at any store um, and it actually works well as a lubrication as well. So when we talk about actual treatment now, instead of kind of symptomatic relief or use for sexual activity, that's when we start talking about hormones. Um, And I said that genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or what we used to call vulvovaginal atrophy, is really related to a decrease in hormone levels um, and blood flow. I'm sorry for the, there's a little typo. The, the treatment for this is going to be vaginal estrogen. um, And we use the... um, the creams are kind of the most common. There's two different kinds of brand name creams that are out there. Um, and then the, they work basically the same way. Um, sometimes the formulations or dosages are a little bit different. The main thing to know is that they do cause a very transient um, elevated systemic estrogen level. Um, and so, and it's usually in the first couple months. So we do try to avoid these in, um, in hormone receptor positive cancers. And I'll talk about what this means for gynecologic cancers, um, but it's really more relevant in the breast cancer patients that definitely um, have a lot more sensitivity to hormone uh, receptors. Um, We know that for endometrial cancer, we don't have evidence that that using topical or local estrogen is going to 
um, cause recurrence of endometrial cancer. Um, so I think that for most endometrial cancer patients, what I always recommend is talking with your gynecologic oncologist, uh, but that the data really does support that this is a safe thing to use because it's very local. Um, and I'm talking about the creams here, but there's more than just creams. So there's actually alternative forms of providing the estrogen to the vagina. Um, one of them is called the E-string, which is a silicone ring. So it goes, it's placed in the vagina. I'm just showing you kind of a picture. It goes, this is the bladder here. This is the uterus. And this is where the ring is. You can see it's kind of up where a tampon would be. It's Women do not feel it. You can actually have intercourse um, or any kind of sexual activity with this ring in place. And it releases a very slow amount of estrogen over three months. It works pretty well, especially for... Um, the vaginal tissue. I think for people who have a lot more dryness on the external area, on the vulva, sometimes you do need to put a little bit of cream on that area, um, but sometimes all you need is this E-string. There are vaginal tablets as well, so Vagifem, and then there's actually now a generic, finally, called Uvifem. Um, those are uh, tablets that are inserted at night. Unfortunately, we don't have generics of the vaginal creams, uh, but usually insurance will cover one of the two different kinds of creams. Um, so for breast cancer patients, for patients that are really concerned about hormone receptor positive cancer, there actually is very good data to support the safety of these formulations, so both the ring um, and the tablet. They are very local. They don't get systemically absorbed into the bloodstream, and they really do benefit patients. Um, the one thing I always explain to people is not to confuse the estering with the femring. So there's so many different drugs and so many different names, but the femring is actually a hormone replacement therapy, so it's something that you you would take for menopausal symptoms that gives you an, the, its goal is to give you an elevated blood level. If someone just has vaginal dryness, then all they need is the small S-string. They don't need anything more than that. The newest local treatment that I think is important, because this has actually been just approved by the FDA, is vaginal DHEA. So it's um, actually one of the precursors to testosterone and estrogen. Um, and so when it's taken, the, the thought is that the body is converting it to testosterone and estradiol. Um, and both of those um, hormones actually act um, at the level of the vaginal tissue. There's receptors for both estrogen and testosterone. So it's actually... This, there's biologic plausibility for why this works. Um, the, there's been lots of studies on this. Again, the question that everyone always has is they're so afraid of hormones is whether or not DHEA incre increases systemic hormones. And the data so far is actually very reassuring. All the levels that have been tested have shown that even if there is a slight increase, that they stay in the postmenopausal range. Um, there's no concern for endometrial proliferation. They've done uh, multiple studies looking at vaginal DHEA. So more than just GSM, I think is you know um, it's not just about the lack of hormones, but there's also the you know radiation induced stenosis, um, and so we already talked about that this is going to give someone risk for fibrosis and stenosis. The risk is going to increase with um, brachytherapy as well. Um, so we know that the decrease in blood supply, which is part of the goal of radiation, is to decrease the blood supply to cancer, but that's going to have some other effects, and that can also decrease um, the blood flow to the vagina and the vulva. So you're going to have less elastic tissue. It can close off the vagina um, and cause dryness and tenderness as well. So 
Options to help treat and prevent stenosis. I know everybody looks at dilators and gets very scared, um, but it is something that I think is really important to talk about. Um, but that's not the only thing that women can do. I actually encourage women, if they are sexually active, to stay sexually active throughout their treatment. Um, we actually, um, you know, we used to always say that during radiation treatment, they shouldn't put anything in the vagina because there's concern about irritation um, and that they could start as soon as four weeks after. I think that we're actually kind of questioning whether or not people should be actually using dilators or having sexual activity um, during treatment. I think this is going to be uh, something that we're going to start studying so we can have some better defined goals and protocols. Um, so whenever I talk to someone about vaginal dilators, again, um, I'm usually, I, my goal is to see them pre-treatment so we can talk about it, um, and then after treatment to see them again, um, but we usually recommend doing it at least three times a week. Um, and it sounds daunting, um, but there are ways to make this enjoyable. Um, so I just showed some pictures of the different kinds of dilators. There's lots of different ones out there. Um, they're, you know, they can range from relatively inexpensive to very expensive, depending on which kind you buy, but they all basically work the same. Um, and so the idea is that you, you know, you would start with a small size, insert it in the vagina, um, and then leave it there for at least 10 minutes um, to kind of keep the tissue open. And then as the, once it gets more and more comfortable, then you would move up to the higher sizes. Part of the reason that I think is important to think about dilators is for a lot of women, they don't want to be, maybe they're not sexually active. And I, I see many women who aren't sexually active, but in gynecologic cancer, women are going to be getting pelvic exams for a very long time. And so even if they're not having sex, the experience of a pelvic exam can be extremely painful. Um, and it can be painful for women that haven't had cancer and haven't had treatment. But then obviously after they've had treatment for cancer, it can be even more painful. Um, and it's very hard. Obviously, it's hard as a physician <laughs> to cause pain to your patient. But it's obviously much harder for your patient, for the patients to be experiencing pain. And so part of the use of the dilator is really to make it so that those exams, Dr. Chen talked about that after cervical cancer, you're going to be getting a pelvic exam every three months. Um, um, and that's, those exams are not enough to keep the, the vagina open or to decrease pain in order to keep that, in order to make it a less painful experience using dilators and especially early on before, um, before the kind of longest term effects of the radiation happen is really important. So there are treatments for muscular pain. So I put this picture at the top of the, um, the slide because people don't realize that if you look down on the pelvis, I kind of think of it as a bowl, that it's actually, there's muscles that are lining the whole pelvic floor. Um, and oftentimes when women have pelvic pain or sexual pain, it's not, they often come to me and think it's their uterus or it's their ovary or it's their vagina, but it's not, it's the muscles. Um, there's actually a lot of muscular tissue there and that muscular tissue can get damaged and that can cause both physical pain, um, not related to sex, but it certainly can cause sexual pain. Um, and so this kind of pain usually presents as a tightness or a tension, um, but it can also present as a burning and a sharp pain. So it's always a little bit, you know, people are very confused about what could be causing this, but when I do an exam and I feel those muscles, I can tell those muscles are very tense. And the treatment for that is physical therapy and manual manipulation. There are some medical treatments that we can use. So we can use kind of a, a low-dose benzodiazepine. Um, that's a, a drug that we oftentimes use for relaxation. Diazepam is also known as Valium. Um, and you can actually put it into the vagina 
vagina or even into the rectum if you don't want to put into the vagina, and that's used before physical therapy, um, and it can help. Um, it can help actually with manual treatment during physical therapy. Um, there's also targeted injections. So if there's actually a particular muscular point that's painful, we can actually put um, numbing medicine into that area, and it can cause uh, long-term benefit for patients. So neurologic pain. So this, um, you know, there's also in addition to the nerves or to the muscles, right? There's nerves that run through those muscles, um, and these can also be damaged from surgery and from radiation, um, and they can cause um, inflammation, neuromata. Um, and then there's also when we're doing surgery, we can, you know, sometimes we, you know, we cut through the nerves. We can't see them. Um, we cut through them, and sometimes when they grow back, it hurts, or just the act of cutting them can lead to pain. Um, and again, this is where our physical therapists oftentimes are our best help. Um, and then there, but you can also inject um, medicine directly into the nerves. Um, and so you can use, oftentimes we use lidocaine, which is an, a numbing medication, um, or you can even use a steroid, which, is, which decreases inflammation. And so uh, benign gynecologists oftentimes can do this. Physical therapists sometimes do this. But then our pain medicine specialists are kind of the, the experts at this. And at UCSF, they can be very helpful uh, with these kinds of treatments. So one thing to know about nerve pain is that most neuropathic medications don't have great efficacy. Um, and so people that take oral medications for this kind of nerve pain doesn't work as well. Now, some of the other neuropathies um, that Dr. Chen talked about, the tingling in the hands, those can oftentimes respond as well. Um, but for the pelvic and the sexual pain, the oral medications aren't as good. Um, a lot of times people are taking opioids for their pain, and this is not something that works well for nerve pain um, or the pelvic pain um, and muscular pain that happens and that can affect sexual medicine. Um, for some women, they have sensitive nerves just on the really outer part of their skin, and I will then use a topical anesthetic, so you can actually put on topical nerve medications and topical anesthetics that can help, um, and then they don't get the systemic side effects of taking a pill. Um, and I think that there is evidence for exercise, mindfulness, omega-3s, so this isn't all about kind of our Western medicine has to be a medication. There are plenty of complementary and alternative uh, treatments that I think are worthwhile in trying, and that um, if they don't you know, cause a huge benefit, oftentimes they do. They certainly aren't going to harm you. Um, oftentimes what I tell my patients is, you know, we've hit the limits of what I am trained to do as a Western medicine physician, but that doesn't mean we've hit the limits of what treatment options there are. We just have to look for alternatives um, and start seeking out our uh, other colleagues who do alternative medicine. So other interventions for women, so there's devices and toys. I'm not going to show you pictures of these, um, but there actually are some that are designed not just, you know, in the kind of novelty uh, sex store way that we oftentimes see devices and toys. There actually are kind of much more sophisticated companies now that are making really advanced technology um, that really is designed to both increase blood flow, um, especially to the clitoral region, um, and also much more kind of female-centered uh, devices that can be really helpful. Um, there are special creams um, they, you know, that can increase sensitivity as well. Um, and then there is this idea of laser therapy. So this is, there's a lot of um, research going into this. There's a lot of promotion. Um, and I think what's really important when we talk about laser therapy, um, who here has actually heard about these lasers, these vaginal laser treatments? One person. Oh, so this is a very, it's, you know, I think it's so, I think OBGYNs are so familiar with this. The last sexual medicine conference I went to, 
it was just it was talked about constantly. So it's in, it's it's interesting that it hasn't reached um, kind of the mainstream public knowledge. So there are new laser therapy treatments where they put a, a, a wand in the vagina and actually do a laser in the vaginal tissue. Um, and it's thought that the way that it works is by causing kind of little micro tears in the vaginal tissue that then increases the blood supply to repair it and in the process repairs the vaginal tissue. And they've done several studies in um, postmenopausal women to show that it actually does have some benefit. Um, and they've actually done this in breast cancer patients as well. You know, those are the patients who were most concerned about using hormones. Um, but the issue and the concern um, for those of us in the medical community who follow a lot of evidence-based practice is that all of these studies are very small. They're about 20 women. They don't compare them to controls. There's no sham. There's no randomization. So, um, or, uh, so they basically are just saying that these women started this way and now they're doing better, but we have no idea how they would have fared if they got a placebo, for example. Um, and I think that what we know about these lasers is that they are safe, um, but we don't know if they're necessarily efficacious. Um, and for the FDA to approve devices, they actually only need to show that they're safe. They don't need to show that they're effective. And that's different than the way that they approve drugs. Um, so you might start hearing about these treatments more and more, and I think um, we're excited to get more literature or more data um, but it's a little too early for anyone to actually recommend them. So what about desire? So we talked about all these, you know, these ways to treat physical pain or discomfort with sex, but desire really is the number one complaint um, that women have when it comes to sexual health. Um, and obviously this is going to be affected by any kind of cancer treatment. Just the diagnosis alone um, is going to affect, can affect desire. Um, and the thing to know is that, you know, desire is really a complex interplay between chemicals in the brain and responses from the genitals. So um, that both the brain is sending signals, but that the there's also an arousal part of this as well that feeds back. Um, and we know that desire is lower in women who have been treated for cancer. Um, there is only one approved medication to treat low desire. Um, so there actually is an FDA-approved drug for this. Um, interestingly, this, there is no FDA-approved drug for desire in men, right? So people talk about this all the time. Um, you know, that, well, women and, you know, that men have so many drugs and women don't. But I think it's really important to understand that phlebanserin, which is the drug that is approved, is not the female Viagra. It works very different, uh, differently in the body. And so um, Viagra or sildenafil um, works it dilates blood vessels, um, and so it leads to erections in men. Phlebanserin works in the brain in women. That's what it does, and it works on serotonin receptors. That's what the 5-HT1A and 5-HT2A um, mention is here. So those are serotonin receptors. Um, it increases dopamine and norepinephrine, and this goes back to the original slides that I was showing you on the neurochemistry of desire, um, that this drug actually affects the, the neurotransmitters that can affect desire. So it's been shown in numerous studies to improve sexual desire and the number of satisfying sexual events. Um, but just like any drug, there's a lot of controversy, um, especially when it comes to anything related to sex, um, but especially a drug that is uh, for women and relates to sexual desire. Um, and so the, much of the controversy is about how significant the benefit actually is. No drugs are without side effects. This drug was originally studied as an antidepressant, and so it has many of the same side effects that antidepressants have, including 
aching, dizziness, fatigue. Um, and for women, um, for anyone who takes it, it can lower their blood pressure. And so, uh, and that can be compounded by excessive alcohol use. So we are, um, we tell women that they're not supposed to drink alcohol while taking this drug. Um, and I can talk about the data to support that or not. Um, in the studies, they did actually, women were, you know, were not told not to drink alcohol. So the, many of the women did, but if you drink a significant amount of alcohol, it can lead to a decrease in blood pressure. Um, Flibanserin is approved for premenopausal women, and that doesn't, unfortunately, um, translate into the women most actually desiring this drug, who are usually postmenopausal, and women who have gynecologic cancers are oftentimes postmenopausal. There is data to show that flibanserin works in postmenopausal women. We have good randomized trials that show that. Um, it's just that it wasn't approved by the FDA so that we can't get it covered by insurance, unfortunately. Um, but this may actually change. So other options for low desire, the number one thing I tell people is physical activity. So the number one predictor of desire is physical well-being. Um, so women who are healthy have um, better sex lives, basically, and that's across the board, both in their physical and their mental well-being. The number one cause for sexual dysfunction is depression, and then the number two cause is actually urinary incontinence, um, which is, is interesting, and that's more than heart disease or diabetes or many of the other physical um, conditions that women have, but those certainly do affect sexual health as well. Um, there are other drugs that we use for low desire. So one of them is testosterone. Um, another one is bupropion. These, I'm just putting, these are norepinephrine and um, dopamine reuptake inhibitors. So it's an antidepressant. Buspirone, same thing. Oxytocin and berlamin. Um, and the, both of those don't really have data, but they are used. Um, and then bromelanotide is another drug that's in development. Um, you know, I talk about hormones. In gynecologic oncology, um, most of the, the cancers are not hormone receptor positive, and so I don't think there's a lot of reason to be super concerned about hormones. I can talk about the data um, forever about the, you know, the Women's Health Initiative that led to a lot of people's concerns about hormone replacement therapy or hormone therapy in general, but I can just, I will just tell you that if if it started at a reasonable time in relation to the time of menopause, it actually is safe and effective. So it really depends on when someone went through menopause. Um, I'm not here to promote hormones, but I think that it's not something to be necessarily afraid of if you have a well-informed provider that's going to talk to you, talk you through the risks and what the evidence shows. <laughs> So mental health professionals, right? So this isn't just about medicines um, and, uh, and medical doctors, right? So there's a huge role for mental health professionals here. So they're trained in counseling techniques. Um, they're usually in outpatient settings or they can be part of a hospital team. Um, so for anyone that is talking about sexual health, they actually should have extensive uh, training to become a certified sex therapist. And I would just encourage everyone, the AAS, um, the ASTEC organization is basically um, sexual uh, health therapists, and so they get extra certification. So anyone who's going to see a therapist about sexual health concerns, I would hope is ASEC certified. Um, and they have to get ongoing training as well. So a note on partner's care. Um, obviously, that you know, there's two people involved most of the time in a sexual relationship, not always. I think it's important. I always talk to women about there's no reason not to engage in self-stimulation or to be able to have sex alone, um, but oftentimes there is another person um, involved. And so any kind of increased relationship stress is going to impair all the aspects of sexual function that we talk about. Um, and that we know that a partner's emotional involvement um, is actually a strong 
stronger predictor for a woman's sexual marital um, and emotional adjustment after uh, breast cancer because um, we have so much data in breast cancer. We don't have a lot in, in the gynecologic oncology oncology literature. But I see this all the time. So most of the patients that I see, I have to do a very good assessment of what's going on in their relationship. And I think it's really important that knowing what's, you know, that it's not just all on the woman, um, uh, the individual patient, but that it's also on her, you know, there's something going on. There can be dynamics between the partner that are going to affect her sexual well-being and coming to a mutual understanding of what the two people's goals are. So there's more resources I just wanted to um, put out here. So there's a really great organization um, on uh, that looks specifically at the effects of uh, cancer and sexual health. Um, so they're now called they call themselves now the network. But this this first um, hyperlink is their website, and I would really encourage you to go there because they have a ton of information for patients um, to kind of, to look at this. We they're now doing a lot more academic research, but they're also um, going to be advocates for patients as well. Um, so the NCCN um, also has resources related to sexual health. This is getting a lot more attention, and we're really excited about it. Um, and then there's a couple different books um, that I just put out there, if this is something that's of interest to you. So I think that the... Um, so the Patty Brisbane Society, so it's hard to say which one is the best. I would say that the Patty Brisbane Society is um, a big society that um, funds and promotes sexual well-being, and I think that um, having both information from Patty Brisbane as well as an MD is probably going to be pretty good. Um, this one is going to be more about, is a little bit more with fertility issues, so it's going to be for younger women, or for younger women. Um, but I think all of these are actually really good. But I, this one's, this one's going to be, you know, it's hard to say which one's the best. But if you want to start with one, I would say um, the sexy ever after. Um, and then um, and then if you want kind of some more simple reading that's not a long book, then going to the Cancer Sex Network, actually, I would recommend doing that. So just my final note, I just think that I just want to reiterate that sexuality is a part of every person from before they were born until they die. So it's how we're created. Um, people can have really satisfying sexual experiences and sex lives throughout their whole lives if this is something that's important to them. Um, you know, I think I see patients that are in their 70s and 80s who sailed through menopause, sailed through, you know, lots of different family life events, and then just in their 70s and 80s start to have a change in their sexual function that's very dis distressing. Um, and I think that, you know, there's, and then I see women in their 50s that say, well, this is just part of life. I see women in their 30s that have had a kid. This is part of life. I don't ever need to have sex again. And what I always, you know, say is whatever you want, I think is my job to support. Um, but if it's something that's actually distressing or upsetting or something that someone wants to change, I think it's really important that we talk about it because there actually are ways to help. Um, it's a huge quality of life issue. It affects both someone's own sense of well-being and it also affects their relationship and how they view how they go about in the world. Um, and I think each person has a right to their sexuality, regardless of, you know, there's no right, one right way to be. I think there's a lot of media projections of how women are supposed to be sexual beings, and I think that that's doing a disservice. Um, so I think everyone has their own individual right, and I think that our job is to support that. Um, and when it comes to cancer, I don't think it means that they don't get to then experience sex ever again. So I really appreciate being invited uh, to talk about this, and I hope you got something else out of it. Um, I'm happy to take questions um, um, now, or we can just have Dr. Chen wrap up and uh, have discussion afterwards. So the question is whether or not if someone wants to have sex um, to achieve pregnancy after cancer treatment, if some of the treatment options that I'm recommending, would that get in the way? 
sex harder. Yeah, so if, if there's treatment options. So none of the treatments that I mentioned would affect a pregnancy with the exception of systemic hormone therapy. So if someone was actually taking systemic testosterone, um, even systemic estrogen actually probably wouldn't be too bad, but we, I wouldn't recommend giving it to somebody if they're trying to get pregnant. Um, so if someone's ovulating, if someone's actually releasing an egg and having periods, um, all of the other treatments, so even you know any kind of topical lubrication, um, you know, there is some question about the different types of uh, lubrication and their effect on semen motility. So we do know that if you put, you know, sperm or semen in, you know, a dish with a particular type of, of lube, they might not move as fast, but there's never been shown to be any decrease in fertility rates with that. Yeah. All right. So to wrap up, we're going to do a little question the audience and see what you guys learned and then get a little bit of feedback at the end. So... Um, I think that I'll start with cervical cancer and get a sense of, tell me some facts that you know about cervical cancer. We'll figure out which ones we know about and, um, you know, what have you heard and think about diagnosis, treatment, follow-up. So what she says is cervical cancer comes from HPV. So we know that human papillomavirus from Dr. McCune's talk um, is integrally involved in many cervical cancers. There's a few rare types where it's not, but um, the majority of cervical cancers are associated with HPV. That's true. Yeah, so that's something we constantly work on in women's health is, you know, we know that this vaccine can help prevent HPV infection and that HPV is a major driver in cervical cancer. Um, and Dr. McCune also talked about the different types of vaccines um, and their relative efficacies, the bivalent, the quadrivalent, the non-avalent. So we have ways of preventing cervical cancer, and that's a victory for us. Yep. So what she says is that the vaccine has to be done at a young age. So I, I I'm going to give you guys an A for Dr. McCune's lecture, um, because if you vaccinate someone who's been previously exposed to HPV, you do not mount an immune response. And sorry, if you've already been exposed to HPV, you've already been exposed to this virus so that the, the vaccine doesn't work to help to prevent um, the, the immune response that you're trying to get. Okay, let's talk about ovarian cancer. What do we know? So ovarian cancer, it can be bad because it's frequently not detected at an early stage. Um, we know the most common type of ovarian cancer presents with an advanced stage. What symptoms do people have with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer? What sort of symptoms do people describe? Yeah, Bloating. Yeah, so urinary symptoms. Great. So those are the ones that we talk about um, as being vague but specifically associated when we go back and look um, for patients who have a later diagnosis of ovarian cancer. You know, so ovarian cancer is not silent. Um, people talk about you know, the whisper. Uh, and so those types of symptoms are things that we want to be thinking about, particularly in women who are at high risk. So I think that's when I was stuck on the East Coast on a flight. So um, very good. Anything else about ovarian cancer that we should talk about? Okay, so I think that that principle is absolutely correct. When we talk about treatment of ovarian cancer, we want to make sure that when we're doing surgery, we remove as much cancer as possible. Um, in cancer that has spread, we assume that there's going to be microscopic disease, and that's why we recommend additional treatment. Um, what treatment do we recommend after ovarian cancer? 
surgery and chemotherapy, right? So chemotherapies usually are follow-up to ovarian cancer because of that microscopic disease and systemic disease. For early ovarian cancer, the earliest of the early, if somebody has a cancer that's only in the ovary with no sign of spread at surgery, sometimes we don't have to give chemotherapy. And certain types of ovarian cancer that are lower risk, that aren't growing as fast or that have a lower risk of recurrence, we don't always give chemotherapy to. But that microscopic disease is why we would do what's called called adjuvant therapy, and that's the chemotherapy that Dr. Chapman talked about last week. So you're asking about the standards of care. I'm just repeating the question. Um, what, what do you mean by are the standards of care all hospitals? I mean, when we talk about surgery and chemotherapy? Yeah, so there's guidelines, um, there's evidence, there's research that's gone into how is ovarian cancer best managed. Um, and, the, and the evidence for ovarian cancer has shown through studies that the surgery is important, the chemotherapy is important, the minimal residual disease is important. One of the other things that in terms of um, patterns of care, it's looking at the surgeon. So a G1 oncologist, you know, I am a G1 oncologist, so that's my disclosure for, um, you know, being not just biased, but looking at the evidence that a G1 oncologist will more likely get someone to minimal residual disease um, than a general surgeon, let's say, or someone who's not trained in ovarian cancer surgery. In addition, there's national guidelines. So the National Comprehensive Cancer Network was what Dr. Chapman referred to last week that sets guidelines for each of the disease sites. And the website for the National Comprehensive Cancer Network is nccn.org. Um, and for some of the diseases, they have a patient-related um, guideline. And for ovary, I know they have a education booklet um, that you can download as a PDF um, that talks about ovarian cancer and management. And what the NCCN does every year is we look at the algorithm, the guidelines. So somebody comes in with a pelvic mass, what do we do? What tests should we order? You know, do those patients have chemo? Do they have surgery? They need a biopsy first. And we review the guidelines, which would be the standard that you're talking about. So those standards are national. They're um, looked at at multiple NCCN institutions. So UCSF is an NCCN institution, um, but so is Ohio State, so is Johns Hopkins, um, so is MD Anderson, and so a lot of places will come together um, through the NCCN and develop these guidelines, which is um, one standard of care uh, for ovarian cancer. So the question is, is it mandatory for a hospital? Who's watching? Well, <laughs> so it's a very good question of, you know, is it mandatory? I mean, obviously, in the specialty of women's cancer, we believe that this is the standard and someone should be watching to some, you know, to some degree. Um, certainly, when we talk about credentialing, for example, we're credentialed by the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer. And they have surveillance metrics that they look to see are ovarian cancer patients with advanced disease taken for debulking surgery with minimal residual disease? They will ask us to screen our cases and look to see our numbers. And you can compare your numbers to national benchmarks. But on the other hand, that's a voluntary um, participation in that type of accreditation. And so I think it is important um, when women are looking for places to get health care that you're going to facilities that are either you know, being treated by a GYN oncologist, um, have a high volume of GYN cancer cases go through, 
are accredited for cancer management. Um, UCSF is an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center. It's a lot of words, but the meaning is, is that um, the practice that we have here you know, is what we hold to be the highest level of evidence. And so we hope that we're not just setting but leading the standards of management for ovarian cancer. Let's talk about uterine cancer. What can you say? Yep. So um, a balance of hormones. So we talk about estrogen. So an estrogen imbalance, being overweight, is a common cause, probably the most common cause in the United States, of having a hormone imbalance. So that's one fact. Right. So the description is most common, but do okay because it's usually found early enough and so we can get rid of it. Did I just paraphrase you correctly? Okay. <laughs> Why can we find it early? What is it that, yeah. Yep. So the primary symptom is bleeding. And what that means is that I tell um, women that if you have bleeding after menopause or irregular bleeding before menopause, that's still worth talking to your provider about. Um, because you just said bleeding is a symptom. But sometimes people go with irregular periods. They don't talk about it. And if you don't bring it up, it's kind of like, you know, don't ask, don't tell. But if you don't talk about it, we don't know about it, and we can't do the evaluation. So if someone has abnormal bleeding, they have risk factors, um, that's certainly something that we'd want to address. How do we treat it? Okay, so hysterectomy is a primary treatment, um, but radiation is a treatment that we use for treating uterine cancer. Um, and so is chemotherapy when we have more extensive disease. And the challenging part about uterine cancer is we do want to find it when it's early because when uterine cancer has spread, um, our options for treatment are not as broad as for ovarian cancer, um, but we still have ways of combining chemotherapy and radiation to be able to manage disease. Yeah, that's an area that's revolutionary in the sense that it's moving so quickly um, that every year I give this talk, I change it a little bit because how we understand how genetics influences cancer is huge. We used to say family history, do genetic testing. Now we say anybody with ovarian cancer, do genetic testing. Now I'm also saying you have other cancers, let's test your tumor because that might help us understand how to better treat your cancer. There's new genes that are being identified as associated with ovarian cancer, and just yesterday, Neriparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, um, was approved as the third um, FDA-approved PARP inhibitor in the last two years. So there's a new class of drugs. There's new drugs on the market. And that PARP inhibitor, as Julie has talked about, you know, is, and Dr. Chapman talked about last week, is directly associated with genetics um, that we understand about gynecologic cancers. So that, that what's the PARP inhibitor? Remember last, so last week Dr. Chapman talked about synthetic lethality, so where if you have the gene um, and you have inhibition of the PARP that causes the two things that come together, causes those cells to be more susceptible and they undergo cell death, so the, the cells die. So another one of those drugs has now been approved by the FDA to show enough benefit for ovarian cancer. So for both BRCA and non-BRCA, this drug has shown benefits. So yes, it's a new drug on the market, and we'll see how well it performs compared to the rest. I have a question about that. 
Right, so you bring up the concept of maintenance therapy. There's a couple of different ways of thinking of maintenance. Um, one is someone who's in complete remission and continuing on treatment, and that's what neriparib was studied um, for women with ovarian cancer. But there's also women who have a response to treatment, and it's kind of low level, and you want to do your best to keep it from coming and becoming active again, and that's another type of maintenance strategy. So those are the types of patients that for, some, for a medication that doesn't have a high toxicity but may have a broad benefit um, that can be useful. So UCSF is going to um, is participating in a campaign called SFCAN. Um, they're looking at the top five cancers, and this is one of the areas that you know if you talk about disparities and women's health, you know we're women and our cancers are women's cancers, so we're cut by half in terms of numbers. This is one of these things that okay. Soapbox. Um, but in terms of how we think about it is we're not in the top five cancers. Um, so, you know, HPV-related disease should be something that we can easily take on. Um, so it's something that we in G1 Oncology clearly think we want to do and continue to spread the news um, and, and increase that awareness. So January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Um, you'll see information, you'll see screening, but people should talk to the pediatricians, the adolescent um, doctors, the adolescent um, providers for adolescents, and ask for that HPV vaccine. So the, the comment was about negative pap smears and the predictive value of negative pap smears, especially in conjunction with HPV testing, I would add. Um, and so I think that's something that we're cautious about in women's health because women frequently come to get their pap smears, and we don't want to not see the women and talk about the symptoms they're having and talk about problems, um, but we don't have to have them come in for pap smears. Um, there's a discussion about whether or not a pelvic exam is actually helpful, um, but we still want to be able to talk to them about symptoms, about family history, about risk factors. And so it's really continuing the dialogue and awareness and having um, risk stratification. So I think it does move beyond the OBGYN office. It involves primary care providers, family medicine doctors, and the community so that you know if you go out and you talk about symptoms, if someone complains about some, you know, pelvic ache, you know, describe what we talked about in this course. And so um, I think that um, in conclusion, I wanted to thank you all for being here. I think it's been a great six weeks um, for my division, for my colleagues, for my friends. Um, and, you know, we wanted to really appreciate uh, your participation in this mini medical school. I think you guys have learned a lot from discussion um, and just hearing what you've talked to me about this evening. And I want to also let you know that September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, and our division will be putting on a symposium. Um, so stay tuned. It'll be probably on a Saturday uh, in the month of September if you're interested in learning more about uh, women's cancer. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.